Just as a warning, in this episode, there will be graphic descriptions of the explosion and its aftermath. Listener's discretion is advised. On February 3, 1971, Teresa Lang Brown planned to meet up with her best friend, Bertha May. The two girls were in their 20s, and they were basically inseparable. But we were like sisters. Oh, we were like sisters. On that Wednesday morning, both of them planned to go to the dentist. We were going to stay home. We had a made our appointment for our gold teeth. They were going to get their gold teeth done. It was just one of the many activities that Teresa and Bertha May got up to together. We just did. We went to church together. We went uh, shopping together. We did some everything together. They also got in trouble together. Yeah, we parted too. For everything Mama told me not to do, I did. (laughs) Everything. The two were in their prime for mischief. I was bad children. <laughs> Got into everything. Smoked cigarette. <laughs> and mama caught me and like to kill me. <laughs> I was bad. There were times Teresa would tell Bertha May not to tell her parents about their hijinks. But her friend couldn't help but spill the beans. Before I could get there, she had no toe. <laughs> but that was my girl. Oh, yeah. They were soul sisters. Did you grow out of it? No. <laughs> you never grow out of being a child. You always be a child. <laughs> but that Wednesday morning, the two partners in crime pushed off their dentist appointment and decided to go to work. Teresa says she doesn't remember why, but when she got up that morning... And I said, Shucks, I'm going to work. And I left my house and walked to her house. And I told her I was going to work. But of course, if I went, you know she was going to They called into the plant to see if they could catch the morning shift, then got on the bus. The girls would do their teeth another day. This is Tripwire. was about 20 miles east of Woodbine proper. Teresa and Bertha May would ride the bus together for the 40-minute commute. Through their windows, they'd watch the scenery change, from their little drop of a town, as Teresa calls it, to the wooded outskirts where the thiacal plant was located. There were others who came from towns even farther away, like Blackshear and Jacksonville, a more than two-hour drive to the 7,000-acre expanse that housed the chemical plant and its 36 buildings. Most of the workers in building M132 knew each other. They were brother and sister, husband and wife, cousins and friends. I liked it working there. Except when they had to wear the gas masks, she said. Until we had to wear the face mask. <laughs> the mask, oh, oh God. The masks were part of the uniform to protect the women while they assembled the trip flares made out of magnesium and other hazardous chemicals. Chemicals that the U.S. government said were merely a fire hazard. 
But that didn't mean those materials wouldn't ignite. And they did, frequently. We had a lot of fires, and we ran every day. That's Lucille Washington Everett, Janie Everett's mother. We made the, the, the top pellet. Lucille is referring to the ignition pellet, which ignites the flare gas. It was really, really flammable because if you mash too hard, it would jump on. The women from the assembly line would run towards the door, where they thought they'd be safe, and the men would extinguish the flames. That was the routine. People got used to the fires. They thought the risk was just part of the job. One day, Lucille went home with some of the powder stuck to her shoestring. And I went in my living room and I stood in front of the heater. I was on fire just that quick. During that Wednesday morning shift, a flame ignited on the assembly line. The fire blew past Lucille, knocking her to the concrete floor. She got up and ran with the others. But the workers thought it was just another fire, so they stayed near the factory building. But this time, the flames spread. And it ran the gamut of the assembly line. That's Janie recounting the day on her Thiokol Memorial Project tours in Kingsland. Held overhead, and it made way to the cure room. The cure room had resting 56,322 trip flares. It had loose materials and eight thousand pounds of magnesium. So when you hear the workers' testimony and they say there were two sub-explosions and then the massive blast, that was the cure room. could be heard from more than 10 miles away. People who lived closer to the plant said their homes shook like an earthquake had struck. A woman working at a KFC in Brunswick, more than 20 miles away, said she heard the explosion. Her mother would be one of the 29 victims that day. More than 50 other people at the plant would be injured. Students at the Camden County schools felt the ground shift. Books fell off their shelves, some of the children would find out minutes later that the building that their parents worked in was completely leveled by the blast. I could hear the fire coming. It had a voice that they, it was really, really something that I didn't expect. I, 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 that the first explosion blew me out of there. Then the final explosion. A massive fireball that hurled people up into the air and knocked some into the ground. Lucille's face and arms were burnt. She couldn't see or hear anything. I thought I was going to die, she said, and began to pray. I said goodbye to Isha. And then I laid down and asked the God, forgive me for whatever I did. Lord, I don't want to suffer. Make it quick. And then the wind blows. I can see. And when I stood up, as far as I could see, with bodies all out there. When Lucille regained her vision and hearing, 
she somehow found the strength to help one of her friends up from the ground. The two started heading for the road when they heard a voice calling out for them. It was Teresa. And Teresa said, help me. She y'all help me. She said, my foot full of rocks. The right foot didn't burn all the way off, but this one did. And, oh my God. Teresa, with both her feet scorched and blistered, made it out to the gate with the two women. What they saw around them would haunt them to this day. The blast threw some of the bodies in the trees, body parts of people. That's Henrietta Lee, one of the survivors. She was a group leader at building M132 at the time. When the explosion happened, something had hit her in the head and knocked her out. She was groaning in pain as first responders began pulling bodies out of the brush. And they put me in the van. Somehow or another, I came to. And when I came to, I looked over to my left, because we was going out. I looked over to my left, and I saw a body, like a fetus, had done brought up like a fetus, and they was burning. Ashes had done covered them. Two or three days later, they came and they told me, you know the body that you saw burning was in a fetal position? That was your sister, Gracie Life. A few days later, she passed. final detonation went off, Morris Peoples, the fire chief of neighboring city Kingsland, was manning his father's grocery store. I happened to be standing at the front door, and then all of a sudden, there was this big explosion that rattled the uh, windows and the door and everything, and I turned around uh, uh, and said that something bad just happened. The blast had knocked down the phone lines around the plant. No one could call in or out. But Sue Brown, who was working in a neighboring building, crawled through the chaos. She crawled to the truck that she drove to work that morning. It was her husband's truck, and he was a volunteer Kingsland firefighter. On that truck was a radio. She sent out a cry for help. We used to keep a, uh, a two-way radio, and I kept it plugged up in the store. Chief Peoples received Sue Brown's message and he sent out the distress call. By then, most of the surrounding cities had already felt the explosion before they even knew what it was. Later, they'd realize this was one of the worst industrial accidents in U.S. history. A notice flashed across household TVs calling for all hospital personnel to come back to work. Local firefighters and police were the first to arrive on scene. People in the community also came to help. Some would later find their family members in the wreckage, or at the hospital, or the morgue. The site looked like the war zone had been brought back home. I immediately thought I was back in Vietnam. Joe Hannon, a Vietnam War veteran, was working at the Gilman paper plant about seven miles away when he felt the entire building tremble. This huge building shook, like rattling. 
Joe is familiar with the trip flares. He used it as a soldier overseas in Vietnam. Later, he'd realized that those materials were the source of the deadly explosion. And then this fire truck came by and stopped because he's had to get clearance to get by. And for some reason, instinct, I think, I just hollered to him. I said, man, I need to get down there. I can help. Can I ride on the truck? And I rode with the fire truck down there and got down there and saw the turbocene that bothered me even to this day because I thought I'd saw the last of that in Vietnam. To get a better picture of the emergency response, Janie says, you have to know that in 1971, emergency services were still in their infant stages. In Woodbine, you had to call the funeral home to access an ambulance. And those funeral homes were still segregated. So if you were black, you called the black funeral home. If you were white, you called the white funeral home. We had three states, 16 cities, 14 hospitals respond to this emergency in 1971. So they had to bring in the Navy from Brunswick and Jacksonville. They had to bring in the Coast Guard with their big helicopters. They did not finish the interstate from Savannah to the Georgia-Florida line. They had to run the uh, emergency on the two-lane highway and overhead with the helicopters. And then there were the civilians, like Joe Hannon, who were hitching rides to the site, or driving there themselves and taking the injured to hospitals in their cars. On the way to the hospitals, workers were still catching fire. Chemicals and powder had stained their clothes and they burst into flames. People had to smother the fires out in their cars and on the side of the road. The sheer number of injured people made it impossible to segregate the ambulances. This was true for hospitals as well. And we had a black side and a white side. That's Corinne Bryant-Alderman, a nurse who was off that day. But like many others, she was called in to help with the victims pouring into the local Gilman Hospital. I was given an injection to a young lady, and I had to ask her name, which I really, truly did not recognize her with all the debris and all over. And when I asked her name, she got very upset because she told me, you know who I am. And I did not recognize her. But soon as she started talking, I guess I knew who she was. She was a classmate of mine. The hospital only had 19 rooms and only a fraction reserved for black patients. The segregation rule had to be broken. And from that point forward, the Gilman Hospital in St. Mary's remained desegregated. Most of the images of that day show debris and rubble scattered for almost a mile. The explosion had taken some of the buildings around M132 as well. Black and white photographs show crews surveying a terrain of mangled wire and cinder block. But the only people who can understand the true devastation are the ones who saw it with their own eyes. First on the scene, Jack West, 
saw everything. I was a stringer for several news media. Jack was a freelance photographer from Brunswick, and he's one of the few who captured the aftermath of that day. And as I started walking through, photographing the scenery, the body parts, uh, I remember seeing one body that was uh, burnt to a crisp just about, was wrapped around a pine tree. I had been a Navy photographer for the whole 10 years I was in the Navy. I was trained to document whatever. I've covered plane crashes. I've covered accidents on the highways. I've covered a lot of things, which all... Jack had covered the Vietnam War, too, photographing wounds and severed limbs for study. Things that bothered me the most were seeing children that were killed in accidents. But I call, like I said, I never backed away from photographing anything until that day, he says. I turned to photograph the scene. I saw two of the rescue workers uh, had a sheet that they were holding between them, and they had a woman's head in it, and her hair was hanging out of the, the sheet, and I turned to photograph it, and I have seen a lot, but nothing has ever compared to this. I mean, it just, some people just about vanished in this. I just had to turn my camera away. Jack's photos of the victims were never released. He handed over the negatives to the Thiokol plant manager and said he didn't want family members to recognize their loved ones in those photos. He didn't want them to see what he saw. They were helping. They saved thousands of American lives. Unfortunately, they didn't find out until it was too late how dangerous what they were doing was. Teresa, who we heard from in the beginning, eventually made it to a helicopter. Rescue teams were taking the severely injured to farther hospitals. Her memory of that moment is hazy, but she remembers being on the helicopter that was taking her to Jacksonville. And uh, it was another lady on there with me, but I can't remember who it was. And they said she had died in the air. The woman with her had passed. One of the men said, open the door so her spirit can get out. I'll never forget that. These days, Teresa's feet hurt, and she's bedridden. You might have been. <laughs> you might have, I don't know. But she's surrounded by a loving family who helps her with meals and her medicine. When she recalls the tragedy of that day, she can hardly get the words out. Her friend Bertha May never made it. And she blames herself. I wasn't supposed to go to work, me and Bertha May. 
Teresa's not the only one who thinks back on that day and what would have happened if they made different choices, or even just one decision differently. But the fault doesn't lie with the workers. It was the system that had failed to protect the employees at Thiokol, a system that would later fight against the idea that they had any culpability at all, a fight so intense that a 17-year-long court battle would ensue. If you was to see Bertha May again, what would y'all do? If you had another chance to be with her, what would y'all do? We probably would run and grab each other and just hold each other. That's what I would do. Tripwire Podcast is a production of the Savannah Morning News. Executive producers are Anne and Pat Longstreth, Zach Dennis, and me, Nancy Guan. Music for the show was written and performed by Andrew Sovine. Learn more about his work at andrewsovine.com. Special thanks goes to Janie Everett and the Thiokol Memorial Project. Learn more about the project at thiokolmemorial.org.